Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. Two things uh, struck me as I was preparing my sermon uh, this week uh, relative to this passage. One, uh, it's very clear in the passage that we have to understand Paul's conversation or his argument here uh, relative to the doctrine of creation. And that, I think, is one of the most pressing issues of our day. Uh, Not in the typical sense of Christians debating creation relative to its time, uh, table, etc., etc., but in relation to the question of whether the world is just stuff or whether the world has a meaning. Is the world merely that of which it is made or does the world have an end? We might say a moral shape to it. And the second thing that struck me as I was preparing this sermon was, of course, this passage touches on that perennially ticklish, if not problematic, question for Protestants, and that is the nature of good works. Um, delighted that my friend Ethan bailed out of preaching on this and gave it to me. Uh, so I want to look today at this passage really with those two things in mind, thinking about the notion of creation and then the issue of good works, and the two of them tie together, of course. Because the basic argument that Paul makes in this passage is that the church is the new creation to be understood in light of the old creation. And if the old creation has an end, a purpose, a shape, then the new creation too has an end, a purpose, or a shape. But before we reach that, let's have a word of prayer. O Lord God and loving Heavenly Father, as we come now to reflect upon your word and upon the teaching of the Apostle Paul as he points us to the heart of the gospel, we pray, O Lord, that your Holy Spirit would enlighten our hearts and minds, that as we wrestle with the thought of Paul, so we might come to understand and indeed to see the Lord Jesus Christ in clearer and sharper terms than ever before. We pray, O Lord, that we might leave this place knowing that we have met with him, our Savior, transformed and better equipped, Lord, to do those works that you have determined beforehand in which we should walk. For we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the first thing I want to draw your attention to in this passage is what it tells us about the power of Christianity, what it tells us about the power of the gospel. The New Testament uses various images to talk about Christianity and the transformation that it brings to the lives of those who come to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ by faith. There are points uh, where the New Testament will refer to it as a resurrection from the dead, and I'm going to allude to that later on. There is, of course, nothing more powerful in some ways than a resurrection. If you've ever seen a dead body... One of the striking things about a dead body is this. It looks like the person that you knew and loved. And yet there is this great gulf now between you. 
and no power on earth is able to bring that person back so that you can enjoy the conversations and the company you once had. To break death by resurrection is incredibly powerful. And when Paul likens the impact of the gospel on people's lives as resurrection, he's pointing to the power of Christianity. Paul will also talk about the gospel as freedom from slavery. That the gospel brings with it a liberty that transforms the life of the one who was previously a slave. The one who previously labored under the lordship of the powers of this world and this present age. And when the gospel breaks into that person's life, it brings liberty. I've never been a slave. I've never been confined. But it's easy to imagine what great release, what great joy. What a wonderful thing it is to be released from slavery. Paul uses a powerful image. The gospel also brings rescue from condemnation. Perhaps we all have a little taste of this. Maybe some of the younger people here know what it's like to be in trouble with mum and dad and you're expecting to be punished. And then your mum and dad, maybe they forget or they relent or something like that happens. And there's a joy, brings a joy. It's a powerful moment. You feel rescued from condemnation. Well, the gospel rescues people from divine condemnation. Paul, again, talking about the power of the gospel. And here he uses the concept of creation. The language of uh, workmanship clearly connotes that, but he also uses here the language of creation, created in Christ Jesus. Think about that. Creation is perhaps the most powerful, the most powerful way of describing the impact of the gospel on life. Notice that Paul does not say like creation. He says created, created in Christ. And elsewhere, when he'll use similar language, for example, in 2 Corinthians, he does not say uh, those who are in Christ are like new creations. He says they are new creations. We might say that conversion is not simply analogous to the old creation, It is a new creation. It points, of course, I think, first and foremost, to God's sovereignty. Creation is a unilateral act. If you've ever wrestled with the doctrine of predestination, you'll know that it's a difficult and can be a complicated doctrine. And yet there are moments in Scripture where it seems impossible to get around that. Here we have conversion described as creation. There is no cooperation in the first creation. It is an explosive moment. It is a unilateral act. It is something powerful. It is rooted in and defined by God's action, not ours. Creation is not renovation or reformation. You think of the first creation. It's not that God had sort of primeval stuff that he then molds into the first creation. Creation is out of nothing. There was nothing and then there was something. Nothing does not bring something into creation, into into existence. God does that. 
It is not a reformation. It is not finding something that's corrupt and reshaping it. It's a radical break. A radical break, we might say, that comes from the outside. Church history, of course, is full of radical conversion stories. The Apostle Paul, who's writing the letter to the Ephesians, is perhaps the archetypal classic story. The Apostle Paul converted on the Damascus Road on his way to persecute the believers. Augustine, in the garden, wrestling with the teaching of the Apostle Paul, as it happens, and making that breakthrough to the Gospel. John Bunyan, if you've ever read John Bunyan's Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners, I sometimes describe it as the worst Christian book ever written because it's really very miserable and rather confused. But one thing that's clear is that Bunyan has a dramatic conversion. Raises the question, of course, uh, what if you don't have a dramatic conversion experience? Uh, I can't say that I had a dramatic conversion experience. Well, I don't think the text demands that we have a dramatic conversion experience. I don't think that's what Paul is saying here. What Paul is talking about here is not whether you have a dramatic experience or not. Do you feel as if you've been created anew? What he's talking about is the radical break that Christian conversion makes to us. We're in the world, but we're not of it. It's an old Christian cliche, but captures something of the truth here. Conversion, however it happens, involves a radical break. You remain in the world, but you are now a citizen of a different country. New creation, of course, is not simply individually significant. Paul is not using the language here merely to talk about how the individual might think about Christianity and about their conversion. He's also drawing upon powerful biblical language to make a broader point. The language of new creation permeates parts of the Old Testament. Particularly think of the book of Isaiah. The latter parts of the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 43. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Isaiah 65. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. And the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. Chapter later, Isaiah 66. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. New creation permeates the thought of Isaiah, particularly in the latter section of his prophecy. What is Isaiah talking about? Well, he's talking there about the overcoming of the alienation from God, which the exile from the promised land embodied for the people to whom he was speaking. Israel was experiencing exile, and in microcosm, we might say, experiencing the human condition in general. Rebellion drives human beings from the presence of God. Think of Adam and Eve in Eden. Adam and Eve sin and they are exiled from the garden. 
Their behavior exhibits what we might call alienation from each other and from their God. They hide from each other. They hide from their God. During Isaiah's time, persistent idolatry and wickedness had led the Lord to allow Israel to be taken from the promised land. If you want to know something of the experience of what that was like for the Israelites, then read some of the Psalms, the great Psalms of exile. Psalm 44, Psalm 74, perhaps most terrifyingly, Psalm 137. To experience some of the anger, the alienation that God's people were feeling at that point. Alienation is the characteristic condition of fallen human beings. We seek always to find peace and harmony with the world around us and with ourselves, yet we feel out of joint. The levels of anxiety and depression in society witness to this. Uh, It's striking when I arrived at Grove, I had to do the uh, the kind of new professor's orientation. This was a couple of years ago. One of the things we talked about on the orientation is the counseling center. Uh, when I was at college in the, the mid-80s, I, I assume my college had a counseling center, but I never heard about it uh, and, and never went to it. Uh, I think between 35 and 40% of students at Grove City College uh, will have some contact with the counseling center uh, while they are at college, either for themselves or on behalf of a friend. What does that speak of? It speaks of an age of anxiety and alienation. It speaks, we might say, of an era where exile is being felt very acutely. The heart is restless above all things, O Lord, says Augustine, until it finds its rest in thee. And when Paul uses the language of creation here, he presents the gospel as the answer to that. As Isaiah talked about the problem being solved, For Israel with the creation, a new creation, a new heavens and a new earth. So Paul picks up that language here and applies it to Christ and the gospel. Not only does the language of creation speak of God's sovereignty, it speaks of the overcoming of exile. It speaks of the gospel as the answer ultimately to the alienation that we all feel living within this fallen world. So that's the first thing then to note. The language of creation speaks of God's power and it speaks of the glorious peace which the gospel brings with it. Secondly, I think Paul here points to what I call uh, the significance of Christianity. What does the reconciliation, what does uh, the creation of which Paul speaks, to which Isaiah points, what does it look like? Well, we might say that in the context of Ephesians and the New Testament as a whole, it looks like the church. It looks like the church. That can be depressing. Uh, Most of us experience the church as something less than heaven on earth. But that doesn't mean that theologically it is not meant to be a little taste of heaven on earth. How many of us are there here today? Maybe if you combine the the two services and, of course, the church plant. That's great news that the church plant is being launched this evening. I've preached regularly enough to 
get the updates on that, and that's wonderful. But if you combine every faithful Christian in Grove City, sitting under every faithful ministry this morning, what is it? It's probably a fraction of the population. The church looks small and weak, even in the sort of Pennsylvania Bible Belt. If you go to New England or you go to Manhattan, how weak does the church look there? And yet, Paul talks of the church as the new creation. Remember, of course, the logic of the cross. We do not judge things outwardly as Christians. Paul makes the point that we judge outward reality through the lens of the weakness of the cross. So that's the first thing to note. The outward weakness of the church does not, I think, compromise Paul's argument here. Secondly, as he will proceed uh, in this epistle, in this letter, he will make the point that uh, the gospel, the reconciliation is most obvious, certainly in his day, in bringing down the wall that divides Jew and Gentile. That will be a practical manifestation of this new heavens and new earth. And what is the way that barrier is brought down? What does this focus our mind upon? It centers our thinking on Christ. All of this is done in Christ. We are told here we are created in Christ. That's a a tricky phrase that has a, a number of connotations. And I think Paul is using it here actually to capture not a single meaning, but, but two, two meanings, I think, that do not cancel each other out, but are actually complementary. First of all, with God's work in Christ, because what God did in Christ was breach and abolish the wall separating Jew and Gentile. Paul is thinking here of the work of Christ. What is the work of Christ? Well, it's the incarnation. It's the obedience of Christ. It's the death. It's the resurrection. And importantly, it's the ascension. Just as an aside, one of the most neglected doctrines in the whole of Scripture, I think, is the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. No ascension, no sending of the Holy Spirit, no breaking of the barrier between Jew and Gentile. So Paul is thinking here of the work of Christ, the sending of the Spirit, the fulfillment, the universalizing of the great promise to Abraham. But he's also thinking here, I think, about the relationship that now holds between the church and Christ and between believers and Christ. The coming of the Spirit draws believers into union with Christ. And in union with Christ, believers enjoy by adoption that which the Lord Jesus Christ enjoys by nature, and that is communion with God. Believers united to Christ enjoy communion with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. That's what being a new creation is. Being incorporated into that Trinitarian communion. Those identified by faith with Christ are new creations. And they represent 
the inbreaking of heaven here and now because what will heaven be? Heaven will be the perfect enjoyment of communion with Father, Son and Holy Spirit. That's why the church on earth is a little taste of heaven on earth. Because what we do here and now in this worship service is a foretaste of what we do for all eternity. We worship God in the Son, by the Spirit, as our Father. Those identified by faith with Christ are new creations. Part of the inbreaking into the here and now of what Isaiah has prophesied will be the ultimate future. We are no longer alienated from God. We commune with God. Our exile is over. That does not mean we will not still experience the pains of exile. We're told in the New Testament that we are sojourners, pilgrims. Pilgrims, strangers in a strange land. But our home, our home is certain. And our hearts already rest there. And that brings me then finally to the purpose of Christianity. Here we get to the good works. Paul articulates the purpose of Christianity here as good works. It stands to reason. The first creation, I started by saying, one of the big battles in the world today is, is the world just stuff or does it have a particular shape? If it has a particular shape and human beings have a particular moral shape, if you like, then we are to behave in certain ways. There are certain things that we might do that we would describe as inhuman or dehumanizing. Well, if the church is a new creation then we might say Christianity has a moral shape as well. The new creation has a shape. The new creation is meant to look like something. The language here is quite strong. It's purposive, <laughs> intentional language. There's a new creation, and the purpose of that is, well, God has set up good works in which we are to walk. The Christian life, if it is, as I've said, an anticipation here and now of heaven is to be marked by heavenly behavior. The church, if you like, is the institution which marches to a different drum to that of the world. The church is to point in the way that she acts here and now to the future reality that will be the consummation. It's part, I think, of the prophetic office of the church. Remember, sometimes we talk about Christ as being prophet, priest, and king. Well, we can say that about the church. The church, too, has a prophetic, a priestly, and a kingly role. The church is to represent, for example, the rule of Christ. To demonstrate here and now what lives ruled by Christ look like. The church is to be a prophetic witness to the world around by marching to the beat of a different drum. How does the church do that? Well, the church does that, I think, by proclamation of word, by sacraments, by protesting the world, by pointing to something better in and through the life and the lives of the church and her people. I put it this way. We often talk as Christians a lot about transforming the culture. The church does not 
so much transform the culture as exist as an alternative, godly culture. Christ rules everywhere, but he is to visibly rule in the church here and now as a pointer to the consummation that is to come. And that, of course, raises the issue then of works. It's a tricky question. A big part of the battle at the Reformation was the question of the role of good works, efforts, if you like, in the Christian life. Well, how might we approach this? Look at the logic of Paul here in microcosm. It's the logic that Paul uses again and again in his letters. What Paul does when he talks about works is, well, theologians say he he grounds the imperative in the indicative. What does that mean? He grounds the requirement for good works in something that's already done and completed. Christ has completed his work and ascended. The kingdom has been guaranteed. That provides the context then for Paul to talk about the imperatives, the calls he makes for Christians to live in a certain way. In Corinth, when he hears about this man who's living this very sexually immoral life, he calls upon the Corinthians, kick him out. That's not tolerable Christian behavior. Kick him out in the hope that that will bring him to his senses and he will reshape his life, appropriate to one who professes to follow the Lord of heaven and earth. What we are, really, for Paul, Christians, shapes how we behave. Now you might think about, well, how do we avoid legalism then? How do we avoid thinking of works as something that we need to do in order to be in good graces with God? Well, we can draw analogies, can't we, with ordinary life. Think about families or schools or workplaces. We naturally behave in certain ways, I think, in those contexts. Think particularly of the family. Think of the psychology of action in the family. We do things, we behave in certain ways in our families, not to be members of the family, but because we are already members of the family. We could put it in a family, fancy way. We could say we've internalized the way we behave as family members so that we seem to do it naturally. And I think that's the way of Christianity. Christian discipleship involves what? Well, I would say on one level it involves the internalization of Christian behavior. We don't do good works in order to be approved by God. We do them because we are part of the family of God. We do them because our Christian intuitions point us, pull us in that direction. How do we do that? How do we do that? I think it's through the church. I don't think we do that by sitting around and thinking about how can I screw up my effort to do better next time. I think what happens in Christian discipleship is this. The Lord, through word and spirit, slowly but surely transforms us so that the desires of the Lord become our desires to the point where we express our freedom through doing those things that God wishes us to do. And how does that 
come about? Well, it's supernatural. It's through the means of grace. Preaching sacraments and worship. Preaching. Do not think of preaching as transmission of information. Do not think of preaching as a pep talk or an instructional thing. Preaching is being confronted by the Word of God, which is a transformative thing in and of itself. Secondly, the sacraments. What do the sacraments do? They feed our faith. They feed our faith. The sacraments are not mere symbols. We don't do them simply to remind ourselves of stuff. Sacraments have a power attached to the word that works in our hearts and minds. Think of worship. Worship is critically important. I think what we sing and the way we sing it shapes us. Talked earlier on about the language of Paul uses of slavery and freedom. Think of the African American spiritual tradition. That wasn't simply an expression of the African American experience of slavery. It expressed hopes. The singing of corporate songs shaped identities, shaped the way people imagined the world to be. When we come to worship, Worship shapes us for the work that we're to do. We're shaping our intuitions by internalizing, internalizing the things that God wishes us to do. Think of family events you do over the years. Probably most of the way you relate to your parents is not the result of them giving you an instruction book on how to relate to them. It's because you shared meals with them. It's because you exchanged gifts. It's because the rhythm of life was marked by friendship and fellowship with them. That is how the Lord transforms his people. And that, in conclusion, is why the Christian life is powerful and prophetic. Because as a community, under the word, fed by the sacraments, worshipping the Lord together, we are a new creation. Let's pray. Lord God and loving Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the teaching of your word. We thank you for the opportunity we have today to gather together under the sound of that word, to celebrate your sacrament, and to respond to you in prayer and praise. And we pray, O Lord, that your spirit would use these things in a quiet, perhaps even undiscernible way to transform the desires of our hearts and minds that we might do those works that you have set out for us to do, not in a spirit of self-righteousness or legalism, but as a joyful and delightful expression of the knowledge that you are indeed, through Christ, our Heavenly Father. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. They took your life. They could not take your